Um, as we have closed out Revelation, we focused on for a little bit about um, our distinct mission that God's called us to. We had a kind of a health checkup as, uh, as it pertains to our mission as disciples of Jesus. And then as we were just praying, seeking the Lord, in, in follow-up to Revelation, Revelation has a lot of implications for our lives. And one of those is that we might not fear. And, and today, in today's day and age, we realize that fear is a huge, not only issue, it's a huge temptation. It's an, an ever-present reality for many of us. And so we want to come to the Lord, to his word, to see what he says about our fears. Last week we looked at Psalm 23 and we saw that we don't need to fear because Yahweh, he's my shepherd. He he provides for us, he protects us, and he's present with us. And so this week we'll be looking at John 4, 17 to discover what does God say? What else does God say about our fear? So turn with me in your Bibles to John, well, 1 John, sorry, 1 John 4, 17. 1 John 4, 17, this is his holy, inspired word, and hear this as his word for you today. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words of encouragement to us, words that speak peace instead of fear, Lord, words that speak confidence to us instead of fear. God, I pray that we may come confidently before you because of your love for us and in us and because we are in your love. God, I pray that you would help us not only to understand your word, but to understand ourselves better and understand you better so that we might not live in fear, but God, we might live complete, fulfilled in your love. God, I pray that you would give your grace. Lord, we need your grace whenever we gather, but Lord, we know that where we are gathered, um, you are here in our midst. And so, Father, we, we ask you boldly, confidently to be present with us as you promise that you are. Would your Holy Spirit enable us to hear from you? We need you to open up our ears and open up our hearts and minds so that we can understand and apply your word. Lord, would you do that by your Spirit? And Father, we pray as well by your Spirit that you would impart your grace through your word preached. Give me strength, give all of us strength. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't remember the first time I lied. I don't know about you. Do, you. do you remember the first time you lied? Anybody here remember the first time they lied? I don't remember the first time I lied. I don't know when it was, but I suspect it was something, I'm pretty sure it was early on and it was to avoid punishment of some sort. I remember so many times lying to avoid punishment as a child, and it's not that my parents were bad parents. They were generally good parents. They, they tried their best. They tried to love me as best they knew. 
Um, by the time I was five, they'd just become believers at five, and so they were unlearning lots of things. I was the fourth in line, so they'd already learned lots of parenting that wasn't, didn't have anything to do with God, and so they were relearning things, but they were loving. They tried to discipline us fairly and justly. They, they might have gotten it wrong a lot of the time, too. But I know that they intended to treat me well. They intended to love me. They, they wanted to love me so I, I can forgive, and I've already done that, forgiven those times when punishment was unjust or unfair or over the top. And, and as I got older, there were some times I remember that I think, you know what, I'm not so sure I really deserve those punishments. I'm not sure I deserved what I received. But, you know, they meant well. They tried to love me. And um, sometimes, though, I get punished more when I lied. I don't know if you've ever experienced that or if you have that kind of rule with your own children. You know, if you lie, it's going to go way worse for you. That was kind of the mantra I heard. And eventually, unfortunately, I became craftier at telling lies. I learned that, hey, if I'm caught in a lie, it's far worse. So instead of doing what I should have done, I thought, well, I'll just get better at lying. And I'll get better at deceiving. So I got crafty. And so I learned, hey, here, I can tell a little bit of the truth so it appears like I'm truthful because that part really is, but then hide the rest that's really bad because I don't want them to understand and to see how bad I really am. And in general, I got away with it. It's not good. I'm not endorsing that. It's not like a model for those who are in the room and who are still in their parents' house. Do not follow my model. That's a cautionary tale. Um, it led to lots of hardship and difficulties in my relationship with other people and with God that, that God, by his grace, has redeemed. But, but I learned, though, that I could get out of punishment or take lesser punishment if I hid, if I responded certain ways, because I was afraid of punishment. I was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of, of correction. Um, and I, I think that as I was considering this passage and then really considering the whole Bible, one of the most basic fundamental fears, and I think the Bible would teach this, one of the most basic fundamental fears that we see that humans have, that we have as humans, is fear of judgment. Fear of judgment, fear of punishment. And specifically the punishment, the judgment we know we deserve from God. It starts very early on in the very beginning in Genesis, right? We see that. The very first thing we see after sin is fear. Fear of punishment, fear of judgment, fear of what they knew they deserved. It's a combination of fear resulting in shame and hiding. And with the realization that humans are unworthy because of their sin to stand before a perfect and holy God comes this fear of judgment, this knowing that we really rightly deserve judgment, we really deserve punishment, and we're afraid of that. Now, nobody in their right minds wants to experience judgment and the consequences of punishment. So we try, at least, to hide. We try to flee like Jonah did. We try to get away from punishment somehow. And the last time we see fear in the Bible, so we see fear at the very close to the beginning of the Bible, and we see fear really close to the end of the Bible in judgment. Fear of judgment to begin with, and then fear of actual judgment, which happens. And in between, the whole Bible is about what do we do with that? What do we do with that fear? There's a right fear. What do we do with that fear, that fear of judgment, that fear of punishment? And in this interim, from Adam to the, 
to the, from the first coming of Jesus until the return between Jesus and Revelation, the question for us is whether or not, the question for you, whether or not you have confidence now to stand before God and whether you will have confidence to stand before God on the day of judgment in light of the punishment that we know our sins deserve. And John's answer, this is what we find here in 1 John. Now, it's in the context of loving other people, and he gives a basic motivation for not only loving other people, but loving God. And this motivation he gives us, he, he gives us an answer of, hey, because we object. Hey, we, we have problems here. We have problems loving other people. We have problems loving God because we fear. And so his answer from believers, I mean, for believers, those who have been saved by God's grace, put their trust in Jesus is that we don't need to fear. That's what John's saying. We don't need to fear because we're loved perfectly like the perfect son. If you're struggling with fear, I would submit that perhaps one of your most basic fears underlying all those things, and I think the Bible would say that as well, the, one of the most basic fears that we have underlying all other fears that we have is the fear that we're not loved by God, that we'll be judged by God. Or that somehow we're being judged by God. We don't need to fear, is what John wants us to see, because we are loved perfectly like the perfect son. And that might be hard for some of you guys to believe. It's hard for me to believe at times. But in these two verses, John directly addresses our most basic fear, the primitive fear that began after Adam and Eve sinned, and that fear, that primitive fear at the end, in light of God's holiness being completely revealed and seeing his imminent judgment John directly addresses those fears of God's justly deserved judgment and the punishment that we deserve. And the first truth that he acknowledges, it can be cause for fear at, at the basic level. And he, he, he addresses it kind of in a, in a backwards way. He says we can have confidence for the day of judgment. So there is a truth there that he is putting out there. And he's saying, hey, there is a day, there's a day of judgment and we can be confident instead of fearful. So think about that. There's a day of judgment, and he's saying we can be confident instead of fearful. That's the first, the first truth we see in this passage, point number one. There's a day of judgment, and we may be confident instead of fearful. On the way home from Thanksgiving, I can't remember if I shared this or not, but on the way home from Thanksgiving this year, we're driving back from Virginia, and I was, in, I was ready to be home it was not the day after Thanksgiving, it was the Saturday, so, or Friday, sorry, the Friday before, so I wanted to come home, I wanted to prepare for the sermon coming up that Sunday. I was already in the zone, and I was just ready to be there, and, and I was speeding. I didn't think I was speeding dramatically. I set my cruise for somewhere between 8 and 10 over. Um, yeah, it's breaking the law, but my conscience allows it, and so I did that. What I didn't know is that the speed varied from 65 to 55 to 70, and apparently in that one little mile stretch is where the cop was sitting. And I got a ticket. And, and I hate the idea of getting a ticket. I, did, I don't like that I got a ticket. It's the first ticket I can think about 10 years. And, and I'm guilty. I can't, can't argue it. Now, I don't feel like it's fair because I was in that in-between. But it is, even though it was an unjust speed limit in the middle for a mile. Why'd they lower it there? Why was he only sitting there? You know, all those questions come to mind. We want to justify our sin. But the reality is I really broke the law and I actually consciously did it. Had I not set my cruise up and above and I set it at 65 and it was at 55 zone, I might not have gotten the ticket. 
So I was consciously pursuing my own course that I was justifying on my own, and I was guilty. And so they set the court date for January 22nd, and so a lawyer called me and said, hey, I'll represent you for a, a, a small fee since I couldn't make it up to Virginia. I'm like, you know, I don't want the points of my license. Maybe I'll do that. And then I find out a couple weeks ago that, nope, they've delayed it to February. Then I find out, no, no, they've delayed it to March. Now I've got this impending judgment waiting over me. I don't like that idea. I'm like, oh, man, is my insurance going to go up? What are the consequences for this judgment? What's it going to be? And I'm not confident. <laughs> I'm not confident. I'm not confident for that day. And justly so, rightly so. I'll plead mercy is what I'm pleading, really. There is a day of judgment that is far worse, though, for every single infraction, every single sin, every weakness, every time we violated God's perfect morals, every time we violated his character, his laws, what he, has, what he expects of us as our creator and we as creatures, every violation we justly do deserve is not unfair, and there's a day of judgment coming. We learned about that in Revelation, right? So how in the world can we be confident? If This is the same John, by the way, who wrote the book of Revelation by the Holy Spirit, who wrote the Gospel of John, which we're going to come to about 10 months or so from now. So I, I love getting to hear from John in this interim. He's an old man. He's probably around, I don't know, in his 80s or so. It's before he's taken to the Isle of Patmos, probably just a couple of years before that. He's, he's probably in Ephesus in one of those seven churches. He's writing to them, and he is very familiar with all of the teaching of Jesus that there's a day of judgment coming. And he's saying, churches, listen, there's a day of judgment coming, but you can be confident to stand not only in that day, but today, instead of being fearful. But how can that be? How can that be? How can we be confident when we discover that mankind is sinned against a holy creator, um, and we're going to have to give an account? How can we have confidence deep down when every one of us knows we've sinned against God, whether we admit it or not? And that, that, that makes most of us just a little bit nervous to think about. Do you remember the first account that I mentioned earlier of Adam and Eve, the very first sin by Adam and Eve, the first people who God created? They were perfect, and yet they sinned. They disobeyed God. They took of the fruit that he said not to. They had everything available, and how did they respond? Let's look in Genesis, in Genesis verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, 6 tells this account of what happened, and it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They sinned. And look in verse 7. What's the immediate response? What happens? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Somebody said shame. That's exactly right. The eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. Why? They were fearful. It says, and they sewed, what did they, what did they do? What did they do? They were ashamed. They were fearful. What did they do? What's the response? It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What are they trying to do? They're trying to cover up. They're afraid. They know they're guilty. They're ashamed. They know they're naked. They try to cover themselves. They make themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord. And you can just imagine what they felt. They discovered, oh no, we're, we're naked, we're ashamed, we'll try to cover. 
try to cover ourselves up, but it doesn't do any good because it's just physical covering. And then they hear the sound of the Lord, the creator, the all-seeing, the all-knowing one. He's walking in the garden in the cool of day, and a man and his wife hid themselves. They try to hide themselves in the presence of the Lord God. It would be laughable if it was not terrifying and sad. They try to hide themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But look at verse 9. God's not, he's not confused. He's not, he, he doesn't, he, he's, he, he's not fooled by that. He says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where he was. He wanted him to admit it. Like when I called my kids, oh my goodness, you know, okay. Guys, where are you? Who broke the vase? <laughs> I know. It was one of them. Now, God knows perfectly. He knew exactly what had happened. But did you catch that initial response? What's, the, what's some of the first response that we see to sin, to an awareness of our own sin? It's fear. It's fear. That's, that's one of the most basic fears that we all have. It's, it's in our DNA, as it were, at least our spiritual DNA. They sinned. They understood they were naked. It's not talking about physical nakedness. They were spiritually naked. Their sins were plain. They were ashamed before God, and then they hid. They weren't confident. They were the reverse of confidence. They didn't come confidently before God. Why? Because they knew they deserved punishment. They, they feared punishment. They knew they deserved his justice. They didn't want God to see them. They tried to hide from him in fear of their holy, their good, their righteous God to whom they were accountable. Now Hebrews, if you go over to the New Testament, Hebrews tells us something else. It tells us that we're naked like that. In Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, it's pointing us back to Genesis, pointing us back to this initial fear that we have, this cause for fear is our nakedness, our are being exposed before God, all of our sins being clear. So in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We, we, when we come to God's word, we can't make excuses. We're exposed for who we really are in every way. Look in verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden. Oh, that's meant to make us remember Adam and Eve. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are what? Naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That can, can be frightening. If you are an unbeliever, that, that is a frightening prospect, being naked and exposed to him, to his eyes to whom we must give account. No creatures hidden. We're all spiritually naked, just like Adam and Eve. His word exposes us. And one of the first responses that we're aware of when we're aware of our sins, our weaknesses, our spiritual nakedness, it's a fear-based response. We're in this series on fear because fear is, is one of those things that can control us and we're tempted by all the time. And I think that one of the most basic fears we have is when we experience shame, we try to cover ourselves because we're afraid of being seen by God for who we really are. We don't want him to see us in all of our sins. We try to hide, we try to cover up, we try to pretend. Sometimes we try to excuse it away, we try to downplay it, we try to ignore it. We, we go to his word, we don't like what it says, and so we try to shift it or change it to, so that we don't, so we can not be afraid. Because if his word really calls us to account, if his word really means what it says it means, then we're in trouble. And so the only option is to either follow his word or 
or try to change it. That's what we see in the culture around us, people trying to change God's word because it's fearful. Often our inclination is to avoid God. You ever do that? If, you, if you're caught in sin and you know as a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that the place you need to go, it, that it says that if we, if we sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that we can confess our sins and he will, he will cleanse us and make us, he, will, he will forgive us, makes us clean from all unrighteousness. But, but there's something in us that makes us hesitant to do that. We don't feel worthy. It's fear. We don't feel worthy. It's fear. We, we don't feel like we... God would love us. We don't feel like God wants us, right? You ever experience, anybody here ever experienced those kinds of fears? You can put, put your hands up if you have. Motivated by fear, we can avoid reading the Bible. We can avoid spending time with God. We don't feel like we can come to God. We're afraid. We're naked. We're ashamed. We fear his judgment. And then 2 Corinthians 5, it, it tells us of, of that judgment that's coming. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh my goodness, how can John say we can have confidence in the, in the day of judgment? He says, and Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. If you're not understanding that scripture, if you're not understanding this scripture, that could be fearful. And you know what? Even when we do understand it, I think a lot of us live there. A lot of us live with this low-level fear that God is displeased with us. This low-level fear that I'm not measuring up. This low-level fear that I'm not good enough, I'm not acceptable, I'm not really loved. He doesn't really like me, and I'm afraid of him. Anybody have those fears? Anybody? There's a day coming when we'll all stand before the judgment, and it's abundantly clear there's a real day of judgment. If you're confused about that, go back and listen to Revelation again. How we live and who we trust in makes an eternal difference in judgment, though. When you think about the idea of being judged by his holy right standards and all of our sins, shortcomings, failures, weaknesses being exposed, how is it possible not to fear? How can we have confidence? John's writing this and he says, so that we may have confidence in that day of judgment. So we may have confidence in that day of judgment. Do you have confidence? I don't mean intellectually, but day by day, do you have confidence or do you fear? Are you tempted to fear? In context, earlier in John's letter, he tells us some things. In, John, in 1 John 2, 28, he says, Now, little children, just thinking about who we are, we're God's little children. Now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, oh, here's the clues he's been giving all along in the book of 1 John. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence And what's the opposite of confidence? He tells us, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Not shrink away in shame at his coming. Not do what Adam and Eve did, what we're all prone to do. He says, if you are abiding in him, so when he appears, we may have confidence in him. And then in 1 John 3, 21, he wrote, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if we're abiding in him, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God. But you might be thinking, well, my heart does condemn me sometimes. At least mine does. And he tells us shortly after our passage, he uses the same word about confidence. When he's talking about confidence before God, that he hears us. In 1 John five fourteen, he says, this is the confidence we have before him if we ask anything 
according to his will. He hears us, meaning he is open to it. He's listening. He's hearing to do it. Say, how can we have this confidence? Not to shrink away, not to have our hearts condemn us, but to be able to have confidence, boldness, knowing, you know what? I know that if I'm asking anything, and it's in accordance with his will, that he's going to hear me. The holy, righteous, completely sovereign and able God, he's going to hear me. And so John communicates the second major truth in his passage. It's the second point that I want us to walk away with. It's that we may be confident in this world because we are as he is. We can be confident because we are as he is. Now, we might not be used to saying things that way. We can be confident in this world right now. Not just in the future, but right now, in this current, present, evil age. That's what the world means, this cosmos, this, this present, evil age that we're living in. We can have confidence right now in this world because as he is in, as he is where? Where is he? As he is with the Father. As he is. As he is the I am. As he is. It says something shocking. It says, as he is, so are we while we're here in this world. And if you grasp that, it will help you not fear as he is, so also are we in this world. And he told us part of the answer at the beginning of the verse when, when he wrote, by this is love perfected in us or with us. And what did he mean by being perfected with us? Let's look back at verse 16 of 1 John 4. Verse 16 of 1 John 4, just one verse beforehand. There's a little context here. He says, so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. I'll read that again, actually. So we have come... I want you to be thinking about this. Is this you? So we have come to know, do you know? Do you believe? It says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has, not for somebody else, but for us. Have you come to know the love and believe that love that God has for you personally? God is love. It's not he's just characterized. He embodies love. He is love. He's the definition of love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. How, how have we come to know God's love? Where do we see God's love for us? He told us earlier in 1 John 4.10, these are truths that we need to get, that we need to understand, we need to let seep into our souls until we believe it, until we know it, until we believe it. 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God. If your confidence is in your ability to love God, you will still fear. He doesn't say that. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the turning away of our sins for our sins. The turning away of, of his wrath. That's what propitiation means. It's the big word. It means turning away of God's wrath for our sins. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he loved us so much that, that God, the eternal, pre-existent, the eternal God, who, who's always existed as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect communion, perfect love, not in need of our love and affection. God chose to love us. And then it says he sent his Son the one he is perfectly loving, to turn away his own wrath. The question is, have we come to know and believe that love? Do you get the depth of that love? Oh, the depth of the riches that we have in the love of God. 
And then he says in our verse, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, I remember when I was younger reading a book by Mark Twain, I think it was called The Prince and the Pauper. Anybody ever read The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain? If you haven't, it's a good read. Um, find an updated English version. The Prince and the Pauper, it's a story of this boy named Tom Cantry, Canty, and he is, um, he is destitute. His, his dad is mean, treats him badly. Um, he just wants to see the prince, and he sees Prince Edward, and he's on parade. And as he goes up to Prince Edward, he gets um, uh, hit by the guards, and Prince Edward has compassion on him, takes him up into his carriage, takes him back to the castle, he cleans him up, and then they realize that they, they look like identical twins, and so the prince says, you know, I've always wanted to just be a commoner, to live life by, like, by my own rules, not have to be a royal, not have to live like a prince. And, and, and Tom says, you know, I've always wanted to be a prince because we don't have anything. And I'd love to have everybody be at my beck and call and to have the king and all the king's affection set on me. And so they decide to change clothes and they were just going to do it for a, a short period, but there's a mix up. They get confused. People confuse them. They believe that Tom really is Prince Edward, and Prince Edward really is the pauper. And and the whole book is really about trying to resolve that conflict. But as a result of Tom taking Edward's place, he is treated just as Edward is. Just as Edward is, because just as Edward is, so was Tom in the castle. And in every way, he enjoys all the benefits, all the privileges, all the rights of being the prince. I don't know if Mark Twain intended or not, but I love how that relates to the gospel story. You see, though, instead of there being a mix-up, Jesus willingly took our place. He willingly made that exchange with us. Not because he didn't want to be God's son, but because he wanted us to be. And he willingly took our place, took on the clothes of humanity, if you will, and became human, took our place in every way, experienced in every way what we've experienced, loved us so much that not only did he take our place, he denied himself all the rights that he deserved, and he took all the punishment that we deserve to be the propitiation, the taking away of the wrath that we deserve from our Heavenly Father that we deserve, he turned that wrath away. And so just as he is, so are we. And if you get that, if you understand it's far more than Tom being treated just as Edward is, us being as Jesus is, even as we're in this world, that's astounding. If, if you really believe that, that has something to say to your fears. Not as Adam was, so are we. Not as you behave, so are we. Not even as you love good enough, so are we in this world. Not as what has been done to us, so are we. As he is, so are we. In this world. Now, now, some commentators wrestle with this because it seems too good to be true, and so they shift the meaning to say, as he was. They shift it to say, as, as he was loving, so are we loving in this world, and as we are loving, that we have confidence before God. And, and that's truly ex- theologically true to an extent, but, but that's not what it's saying. It, 
even in the context here, he's talking about love for each other, sign of our love for God, gives us confidence before God. But, but before you get there, the motivation for loving anybody else and for loving God is that he loves us so much that as he is, currently, is and forever will be, so are we in this world. You need to grasp that. I need to grasp that. Let us sink in as he is. What does it mean as he is? How, how are we like Jesus? How, how are we as he is? Well, let's think about it. How is Jesus now? He's righteous. He's completely free from sin. As he is, God's loved us so much that as he is, so are we. He's made us completely righteous in him. As he is, how is Jesus? He is holy. So he's made us holy in him. As he is, even though we we don't experience that reality, as he is, he's declared us and made us to be holy. Now, now practically, we're not not there yet. Don't walk away from this telling your spouse that, you know, honey, I'm really perfect. Um, I don't make mistakes. That's not what the scripture is saying. He is loved perfectly. How, How much does God love Jesus? Oh, perfectly. How much does Jesus belong with the Father? Completely. There's no lack in God's love in any way. There's no barriers between God and Jesus. And so as he is, so are we. And if that truth sinks in, that's going to affect your fear. It's going to obliterate it. It's going to cast it out, as John says. He has every right to be in God's presence. As he is, oh, so are we. And, and so much so do we have every right to be in God's presence that he actually gives us his presence and his presence resides with us wherever we go. We just don't see the Holy Spirit, but he gives us his divine presence, the Holy Spirit. As he is, so are we. We have the Spirit. We have the presence. We're in constant communion with God, whether you know it or not. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we abide in him as Jesus does. We're loved as he's perfectly, completely, and totally loved. And there is no lack of God's love in any way as he is, so are we. If that doesn't blow you away, I don't, I don't know what will. As he is perfectly loved, there's no lack in God's love in any way. So when you're tempted to fear and feel like God is displeased with me, that God rejects me, God can't be happy with me, because of Jesus, because Jesus took your place, he is. We're accepted as he is. We're righteous as he is. We have every right to be accepted as he is. We're in him. Just as he is in a loving relationship with God, without any fear, so are we in this world. Even if, in reality, we don't yet know and believe that. If you have repented of your sins, put your trust, your faith in Jesus taking your place, turning away God's wrath, this is how you are. As Jesus is, so are we. That does a lot to your fear, doesn't it? What about your fears that you're not accepted? Your fears that you're not worthy. Your fears that you're not good enough. Your fears that you're not righteous. Your fears that God is just a little displeased with you all the time. What does that do to that? As he is, so are we. We're wholly acceptable by God and wholly able to approach God boldly as he is. What does that do when you're afraid of coming to him because you've sinned? Oh, as he is, so are we. I don't have to be afraid. And the the final truth that we're going to look at is that when we don't have to fear because we're perfected in his love. 
We don't have to fear because we're perfected in his love. Think about that. We don't have to fear because we're perfected in his love, even if you don't feel that way. You know, when my kids get scared, when, when they're fearful, um, if it's a, somebody scares them or there's a scary or tense situation that we're in, um, or if when we were traveling we got close to an edge or something and something was fearful, um, especially Eva, she was five, she's now six, but when she was five on our trip, when she was afraid, she would come running to those she loved and trusted the most. And typically that was either me or Julie. And my kids would probably say, well, you came to me too. Well, yeah, that's true. But when, when children are afraid, they, they run to the ones they know love them. We don't have to fear because we have a father who loves us perfectly. Look down in 1 John, he says, there is no fear. John says fear doesn't even exist. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in God. Now, because earlier, remember in in 1 John, he says God is what? God is love. And so when he says there's no fear in love, what he means is there's no fear in God and God's love. There's no fear. If you are abiding in his love, as you are abiding in his love, there's no fear in love. And I love that. I love that he defines that God is love. Because he says, but perfect love casts out fear. And then he explains it. He says, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, if you are a believer, you know that sometimes we experience that. Sometimes we fear, right? You are sometimes whoever fears, right? Anybody ever continue to fear? Fear God, fear his wrath, fear punishment, fear he doesn't really like you. You know that he says he loves you, but you're not sure if he really loves you. You have fears. Whoever fears, it says, has not been perfected in love. So why do we fear? You know, I'm tempted to fear constantly. I wish it wasn't true. I'm tempted to fear all the time. I, I wish it wasn't the case. I know it shouldn't be the case, but I'm aware of my sins, at least some of them. I'm aware of at least some of my shortcomings, some of my weaknesses, some of my failures. Are you? Anybody here aware of your sins, your failures, your shortcomings, your, your weaknesses? Yeah. They bother us, Right? And we fear. I feel like I'm undeserving. I feel like God doesn't really want me. I fear that he is not really accepting of me. I fear that all these things. And so what happens? Because because I know that on my own I deserve God's judgment, his, his punishment. And so I fear. And so we fear when we feel like we're not accepted by God. And so what do we do? What's, what are some of the fruits of that fear? If you fear you're not accepted by God, you're going to seek acceptance somewhere else, Right? There's some basic needs that God has created us with and that that need is to be completely accepted in him, to be fulfilled in him, to be found in him, right? And if we don't feel accepted, we're gonna look by God, we're fearing, we're believing lie, we're gonna run other places for acceptance and that's some of the fruits of the behavior that we see in our own lives. Sometimes we fear because we feel like we're not worthy. I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy and we fear, and what happens as a result of fear, we seek worth outside of God. We're meant to find our worth in God alone. God created us to be in union with him, to find acceptance and worth in him, value in him, not apart from him. So if we fear we don't have worth in God, what are we going to do? We're going to look for worth other places or in people or in things ourselves, right? 
Fear's got consequences, real consequences in our lives. It motivates us at a really deep level. How about when we feel like we're not holy? We fear God's holiness because we fear we're unholy before him. We fear when we feel like we're not righteous. So what happens? How does that fear drive us? How does it motivate us? We hide. We blame shift. Just like, what did, what did Adam, the very first thing Adam did, he shifted blame. As if God was clueless and God was like, oh, oh man, that's a good one, Adam. You're right. It was the woman that I gave you. It's really my fault, Adam, and it's really her fault, not yours. But we try to pull one over on God sometimes too, right? And, or other people. Or we try to change God's words and we find that we're not holy or righteous. We hide. We blame shift. Sometimes we pretend to be better. Sometimes. Here's, here's the funny thing that fear can drive us to do. Fear can drive us to work harder in a bad way. Negative fear can drive us to work harder. To be better Christians, to behave better so that we have more confidence. Fear motivates a lot of what we do, doesn't it? problem that we have is that we don't believe, we don't know and believe that we are in his love and that we're perfected in his love. That's what John's saying to us here. We're perfected in his love. Whoever fears has not been perfected in his love. Meaning if we know we're perfected in his love we won't fear. So my problem is I don't believe the gospel is true. I don't believe that God perfectly loves me. At least not completely. Intellectually, yeah, but functionally, often, no. And so I get discouraged, too. Struggle with discouragement, despair, things like that. When I fear that I'm not okay, I'm not good enough, I, I can't ever be, I feel like I never measure up, and so there's fear there. And it results in despair, discouragement, whatever you want to call it. I think that's true for many people. And what we need is to see that we've been perfected in his love. So what does it mean to be perfected in his love, huh? What does it mean? That word for perfected, it doesn't mean that, that we are perfect in his love in, in the sense that we make ourselves perfect. That word for perfected, it's the same root word. It means to be completed, to be, to be full, to be fulfilled. We're complete in his love. Are you complete in his love? You, you've been made complete in his love, but the question is, do you see yourself that way? Do you find yourself as complete only in his love? Or are you fearful and looking to other sources? To be perfected is to be completed, fulfilled in his love, full of his love. And because he is love and because we are in Jesus Christ and because of that we have no fear in love, in Christ, in God, we have no fear. And that if we understand the perfect love for he has for us, it casts out all fear. It will drive all fears of yours away if you understand that he loves you. We saw last week one of the big truths of the Bible is that Yahweh is my shepherd. He's the one who provides. He's the one who protects. He's the one who's present. But you know what? And why we're following up with this one? If you feel like God doesn't really like you, then that doesn't matter. If you're not confident that he loves you, you're still going to struggle. And so you not only need to see that, that God, the Yahweh, the, the creator of covenant God, he is, he is your shepherd, my shepherd personally. He provides for you. He protects you. He is present with you. And he loves you. And you're in his love. You are perfected and completed in his love. There is no lack of the love that God has for you. 
As he is, so are we, and we're perfected in his love. That is just, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? We're accepted, we're worthy, we're holy, we're righteous. In God's eyes, we are as he is, so are we. We're full of his love, we're completed, we're fulfilled in his love. Not looking for fulfillment elsewhere, out of fear, we won't get it, don't have it. We talked about the first time we see fear in the Bible. I want to talk about the last time, because we saw it a lot in the book of Revelation. The last time we see fear in the Bible is when we see the punishment of God for being, being carried out for those who are judged by God and found to be unworthy. So why don't we have to fear? The end of fear and judgment isn't the end of the story for us. In the end, those who are judged are those who are not in Christ Jesus. And we are judged based on the merits of Christ. All of our sins, I, I believe, and I'm not sure how this will happen, all of our sins will be, will be displayed, read out, will be naked and exposed. Yes, that's true. But then every time, I don't know if it's every, I, I just imagine every time, you know, every unrighteousness worthy in Christ. Every, every sin paid for. No judgment. And, and boy, the, the love that results, that will result, it doesn't depend upon us in any way. And he writes that in the very next verse after our passage. And in 1 John four nineteen, he writes, he says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. How can we do this? How can we not fear? How can we be perfect in his love? Oh, by knowing that we love because he first loved us. And the response of love to him and response of love to other people is because he first loved us, because we are in him, because he's chosen us, he's loved us. We're in his love because it was his love that motivated him to love the world. We are in his love. We love him because he first loved us. Do you know that? You know that he first loved you. And if you've responded to him, you can be sure that you are as Jesus is, completely loved. No fear. That casts out all fear, doesn't it? You can come boldly before the throne of grace, come boldly before him, confident that, hey, my shepherd's going to lead me and guide me perfectly because he loves me. He's not going to withhold any good thing that I need. Now, sometimes we have struggle believing that because we don't believe in God's sovereign. We're going to talk about that in, in, in future messages. But we have no fear because our great shepherd loves us as Jesus. He doesn't see us as a, as a, as a speeder, as a lawbreaker. He, he doesn't see us as a pauper. We're loved as a child, as his child, as Jesus, so are we. We don't need to fear because we're perfectly loved like the perfect son. Amen? Well, let us stand and sing together.